Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Sunday Wire. I'm your host, Patrick Henningsen. We're streaming out live on the Alternate Current Radio Network. And now our next guest, his name is Subrata Goshroy. He is a research affiliate at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT, uh, and he's a former staffer uh, at the U.S. Congress. Uh, he is also the author of the report, Serious Questions About the Integrity of the U.N. Report, uh, from September 26th, 2013. That is it immediately in the aftermath of the uh, infamous Ghouta chemical weapons attack uh, incident in Syria uh, that was initially blamed on the Syrian government uh, by the West. Uh, and also, Subrata is also, he's the first and so far uh, one of the only whistleblowers in the history of the GOA in Washington, D.C. and blew the whistle on missile defense fraud, uh, which the GA. O is trying to whitewash, uh, probably still. Um, he's joining us now. Thank you for, for joining us on the Sunday Wire, Subrata. Oh, my, my pleasure. And uh, there's so much to talk about, but you know, let's, let's get right down to the core issue. Now, I didn't realize this until maybe last night, but uh, we had a breaking story uh, out of Syria. This is up at 21stCenturyWire.com as well. Uh, this is evidence that these so-called rebels uh, in Aleppo were using mustard gas against uh, civilians, and evidence has been delivered to the international mission of the Organization of the Pro Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, uh, their mission in Damascus. They've received this from the Syrian government, and I believe samples uh, of the uh, lab samples will be hand-delivered uh, probably to The Hague uh, via Germany, I believe. Uh, in the coming weeks, but um, uh, more bad news, I guess, uh, for for the White House uh, and for NATO member states. They've really been hoping that this uh, these rebels are going to be a viable alternative to you know the government in Damascus. So, and again, this brings us back to your report, Subrata. Uh, first of all, just introduce yourself. And, and then tell us how you came into this story, um, what brought you into this story, and then tell us about your experience putting this very controversial report together. And at the time, I would imagine you got tremendous pushback, or at least you could sense that it was out there, uh, because maybe the c conclusions that you came up with were not the same ones that uh, John Kerry uh, was professing uh, at the time. But uh, go ahead. Subrata. Uh, absolutely. Um, as you said uh, in the introduction that I'm the uh, first uh, whistleblower in the history of GAO, the Government Accountability Office, which is the watchdog agency of the government. It should be exposing fraud instead of whitewashing it. So that was an uh, uh, incredible experience for me. But after I did that, I had to leave the government which I had a fairly high position with very, very high security clearance. Uh, I came to MIT as a refugee um, and uh, uh, to work on things that uh, were important that I couldn't do while I was in the government. So in this context, uh, uh, so I came to MIT 2005, and this thing happened, of course, several years later, and I had done other work on exposing fraud on laser weapons and things of that sort. So... On the, of course, I have been following this battle cry from people like Susan Rice, and uh, who then was at the UN, 
um, uh, um, instead of uh, Samantha Powers, but doing the same kind of job of trying to get the bombs going in Syria uh, on any uh, any excuse. And this red line on the issue of chemical weapons, Susan Rice went to Obama, I, I hear, that now, Mr. President, the red line has been crossed. So I, I was intently following this situation with the U.S. buildup and, uh, and the allegations of uh, chemical weapons use. Before Ghouta, actually, the Syrian government had called the U.N. to investigate several incidences of chemical weapons use elsewhere. And the reason the a, a U.N. commission was, was doing that, uh, the Ghouta happened when they were in Damascus. Very, very strangely enough, the government was so stupid that it would do a, a, a chemical attack in front of chemical weapons inspectors. I mean, totally unbelievable and in, incredible, but regardless. So I was uh, uh, then after the event happened on the 21st, I was up late and uh, uh, on the on the Internet watching the stories. And these videos were just flying in from all kinds of sources. But uh, primarily Elliot Higgins, the guy who used to be an insurance salesperson and now based in England and touted as the expert on chemical weapons. But I know he has he has no background whatsoever. So I've been following this, and then I heard uh, my office is located in the East Campus at MIT, and uh, another professor who I was uh, I had worked with before on missile defense was working just two offices down from me, and he was collaborating. His name is Ted Postal. He was collaborating with this guy uh, Richard Lloyd, who's a former intelligence agent and an explosive expert, and they were writing something up very excitedly about this um, chemical weapon attack. And Postal was trying to show that he has found, he has cracked the code, so to speak, of what really happened from these totally unverified Elliot Higgins videos. So it really disturbed me as a scientist, as an engineer, and as an academic, that people would have no integrity whatsoever in propagating some analyses based on evidence or no evidence whatsoever, just some video clips from somewhere. So it really got me um, angry, and I started looking at these videos and then the analysis, and that's how I got into seeing what the UN was doing along with um, people like Postal, Lloyd, and uh, Sutiagin, who was at the... Uh, RUSI, Royal Institute, uh, Royal United Services Institute in London, probably worked closely with uh, MI6, uh, that they were supplying all these analyses based on some uh, 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 information that's not scientific, to be at the least, uh, to the UN. And uh, that's how I got into this uh, uh, work on these uh, uh, incidents in Ghouta. And so, so what you're describing there, and Elliot Higgins, by the way, uh, he had a blog called Brown Moses, and then he yep. uh, crowdfunded something called Bellingcat. And I might point out the first thing on uh, his crowdfunding page at Kickstarter, you can see is some uh, so-called evidence of the flight MH17 being 
shot down by uh, Russians or Russian rebels, which is actually completely false. Yes. But that was his first ever foray, and it's false. I just point that out for Bellingcat. But so what what he's doing there, Subrata, and I see this now. This seems to be the normal modus operandi uh, from official sources when they're declaring they they have the evidence. They it seems like it's all conclusion led. In other words, uh, someone like Elliot Higgins has a already a prefabricated conclusion. The Russians did it. Assad did it. And then he'll basically assemble evidence or cherry pick uh, various evidence uh, that might be real or fraudulent. Uh, as long as it assembles in in line with that conclusion, then it seems to be case closed. And there's no debate. And if it gets the official government stamp of approval or the diplomatic stamp of approval from uh, either the U.S. or Britain and everything's kosher, it's all good. And uh, move on to the next, you know, next I, conversation. I, I, I completely agree with you what you just said about uh, finding uh, information or not even information, uh, producing information to fit a, a conclusion. And uh, this is precisely what happened at the so-called MIT report, because once the imprimatur of MIT is put on a report, it already has tremendous currency. And then you have somebody like Professor Postal. He's a, he was, not any longer, full professor at MIT of national security. So you can now see that these are experts who can show you some equations and some calculations. And he was backing out from this absolutely garbage number, which is the U.S. State Department put out a number right after the incidents in Ghouta that there was 1,429 casualties. Can you imagine in the chaos of chemical weapons attack, if you see the videos from Halabja in Iraq, you can see what a chemical weapons attack does in large scale from First World War to, to, to Halabja, that people are not in any position to count dead bodies. They're running away, trying to save their own lives, coughing up, eyes puffing, and all this kind of stuff. And here, right the day after this so-called disaster, you have a very precise number, 1429. And that number has no meaning. Noam Chomsky told me that those numbers used to be put on uh, put after Vietnam War body counts of, of Viet Cong killed, and they were com computer generated. So I, I, when I saw that precise number, John Kerry said 1429 with 426 children killed in sarin attack in, in Ghouta the, uh, within a few hours, I knew something was amiss. Also, I did not see dead bodies. People, I mean, in, in the Islamic world, you have to, you have immediate funerals. Where were the funerals? 1,400 dead. Where do you bury them? Nothing. This was just like one room and a bunch of kids were laid out with white sheets on them and people coughing and people were running around. You had a sarin attack. How are these so-called first responders running around without any protection? Didn't make any sense to me. Yeah, yeah. These the, these numbers are. We'll talk about some of the other numbers in Syria uh, in a, in a few minutes. But just going back to report, I see one of the key players uh, in say validating uh, these 
false numbers coming out of of Damascus at the time. And by the way, you have to remember, people should realize that we're talking about an event that would have been the pretext to declaring war, basically, against Syria uh, by the United States and the UK initially. I mean, this is high-stakes stuff. And Human Rights Watch, along with the New York Times, I could name a bunch of other maybe big media outlets, but let's look at those two organizations, specifically Human Rights Watch, um, seems to be playing an, a, a very pivotal role throughout all reports uh, in Syria, at least till recently. They've, they've sort of receded to the background after, I think, maybe being exposed for uh, coming up with some highly politicized uh, declarations and even their director, Ken Roth, uh, tweeting uh, what appeared to be fake photos. Uh, misattributing them to uh, Syria when they're really from Gaza, I think. But um, but you know, it, this makes things a lot more complicated, Subrata, because people put a lot of trust and currency in human rights organizations, especially the high-profile ones like Amnesty International uh, and Human Rights Watch, and yet they're playing such a crucial role in providing the sort of credibility or uh, the sort of seal of approval, I guess, uh, for governments, it seems, uh, especially in situations like this. That's a very hard thing to go against because people have so much uh, sympathy and love uh, generally for charities and human rights organizations. I, I completely agree. The power of these organizations, and by the way, Patrick, I don't think Kenneth Roth is, uh, uh, he may be lying a little low, but I just saw him a few days ago with Steve Cohn, from Princeton University at the uh, uh, radio show with uh, De- uh, Amy Goodman. And, and Ken Roth was saying there that Russians and Syrians are deliberately targeting schools, deliberately targeting hospitals. And uh, uh, fortunately, Steve Cohn kind of debunked that saying, look, you have no, no reliable source of information, but Human Rights Watch has been playing this kind of role, especially on the um, Syria issue for so long that in, in, the, um, in the report that I did, I found them to be working very closely with uh, British uh, intelligence getting information back and forth and 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 totally totally uh, information that's not verified and as you correctly say people think these are human rights organizations the charities that people normally believe them because they don't believe their government and is how dangerous is it then if you know human rights watch even the state department getting information from bellingcat yes. you know from Elliot higgins and using that as the basis of making statements at the un security council and i could say they did the same thing with the attack on the un aid convoy yes. uh, a few months ago that was yes. based on largely on the uh, Elliot higgins so-called evidence uh, supplied by the white helmets uh, in syria Yes. Blaming Russia and Syria for an airstrike on a UNA convoy, which again is ridiculous with the whole world watching every move. Why would they do such a thing? There's no motive exactly like in East Ghouta. But how dangerous is it that our leaders like John Kerry are quoting open source evidence? He uses the term open source for you know social media posts and things. Um, using that as the basis for foreign policy statements. This is, uh, this is an extraordinary thing. I just can still can't get my head around this and i've been studying it and watching it and covering it for 
quite a few years. I still cannot come to grips with this Subrata. I teach a course on, I just came back from Japan after teaching a course on the military industrial complex and how the national security state operates in the United States with uh, uh, the think tanks, with the, uh, the State Department, with the, uh, with the military and Congress together. So, you know, these numbers that Kerry's quoting, then Human Rights Watch is quoting, you don't know where these numbers originate. My hunch is most of the times these numbers are, are, are generated by CIA and uh, uh, U.S. intelligence agencies fed to the, uh, uh, the so-called think tanks and uh, charitable organizations like uh, um, uh, Borders, Doctors Without Borders or uh, Amnesty or Human Rights Watch. And then they put out these numbers. People say, aha. These are the numbers that are put out by these uh, charitable organizations, but the numbers did not originate with them. And then once they quote it, then John Kerry comes out and says, look, the Human Rights Watch is saying this. So it's a totally circular thing. It is really, they are the think tanks and these NGOs and charity organizations in Washington are part and parcel of the military industrial complex and the and the national and the national security state. They work in tandem with CNN and the and the, and the media. So uh, you cannot parse it. You you wouldn't know where it came from. It just appears out of the blue. Yeah, we had the same thing happen this week. Uh, there was a statement made uh, from, I believe it was uh, Mr. Colville from the UN Human Rights uh, Council. I yeah. believe it was him. Right. He said 82 uh, civilians were executed by the Syrian yes. army in East Aleppo. And then he, so his sources are uh, human rights groups, um, but we he didn't, he wasn't specific as to which groups that they were. Uh, so I wasn't certain, but yet his statement was repeated. It cascaded through media and through political leadership. Uh, and this was sort of a damp. And then Samantha Power gave this sort of piece de la resistance uh, at, uh, on the floor of the UN two days ago, I, saying, saying you, sh- you have no shame, she said to Russia and Syria. I, I saw that. My God. I mean, talk about shame. I mean, can you imagine that she has the... Uh, you know, uh, gumption to say that when we have such a history from Vietnam to all over Latin America to, you know, from uh, coup in Chile, in El Salvador, in uh, trying to kill Castro so many times and then torture Abu Ghraib. And we have the moral authority to say to the Russians and the Syrians that how dare you and you have no shame. It just is unbelievable. Well, yeah, it's especially coming from a Democrat, uh, yeah. supposedly the Democrat administration. So it's, it oh, seems yes. to be a full flip now. Uh, right. the, the neocons are now the uh, timid, uh, reasonable ones. John Bolton right. makes a statement saying that the Russian hack is a possibly a false flag attack. <laughs> I nearly, I nearly choked on my uh, biscuits. Uh, I'm enjoying I- that. Yeah, I think it's quite extraordinary. Um, But going back to to the chemical weapons thing. Now, the whole point of this, um, so you look at the motive, and I know you don't get into judgment. You're you're strictly researching the facts and presenting your analysis of the facts. Um, But certainly if we talk about motive, um, the Syrian government has no motive whatsoever to use uh, chemical weapons, especially when U.N. weapons inspectors are right there. Uh, Absolutely within a few miles, but yet how this is spun in the media is that 
though he's so he's such a crazy despotic dictator that he would do the most irrational thing imaginable uh, and that that reinforces the idea that he's a despotic crazy dictator so yes. it's kind of a vicious cycle of um of reasoning that's employed in order yes. to sell uh, the alternative explanation by right. by right. the US government so i mean you, that's what you're going up against and so you know how how difficult is it to get people to actually listen to the facts when these overarching narratives are so dominant uh, in the minds of of especially po- political decision makers yes no doubt uh, patrick can i you know when you started asking question on this about how facts were manufactured to fit a conclusion i want to just home in on that point because it's very important in the case of this uh, uh, particular uh, uh, situation in guta so the mit's so called reputable mit professor who started with this uh, uh, number 1429 which is again as we see it's a number just pulled out of the hat and he used that number then he went to so i said okay i've got 1429 dead so how do i uh, uh how do i show what it would take to kill 1429 or 1400 something people with sarin gas so he's not a chemical guy but he got some information somewhere that you need a certain volume of sarin to do this damage so he then looked at elliot higgins uh, um uh, uh, videos and found this what he called a very clever uh, sa uh, syrian army rocket design which is then shown in the new york times and he showed the size of the barrel from the photographs he saw and made out some uh, some uh, dimensions just by looking at photographs comparing with with somebody maybe standing there or whatever from and and scaling it and he comes up lo and behold 50 liters 50 liters of sarin would kill 1400 people <clears throat> now guta is a small area but it's not that small so just by dropping one canister of sarin with 50 liters it might kill a bunch of people around them but it's not going to kill the, all the population in uh, that are spread around but this 50 liter thing is completely fiction and was picked up by the un in their report it is an absolutely unbelievable thing they reported this 50 liter business in their interim report which was provided by the mit analysis which was to basically fit this conclusion that 1400 people need so my question to them was you don't know the casualty we don't know the casualty we haven't seen the dead bodies we even asked the um, at the final press conference of the un uh, inspector team the selstorm uh, who was the uh, swedish chemist who led the inspection team was asked directly by a reporter i think it was colum lynch he asked him at the un presser that what what do you know about the casualties oh we don't really but huge casualties you know did you go to a morgue oh no we didn't have time we were just there for 2 hours so this whole bogus thing this analysis was completely bogus it came up with this number then the rocket size and then the photograph and lo and behold un is concluding the rockets came from the government positions 
Yes, yeah, and and this isn't this isn't the only chemical incident that that's that is more than questionable. Um, we we were one of the first people in the English language anyway to sort of debunk the uh, chlorine attacks at Kanye yes. Sal in uh, March 2013, and I did this just by translating uh, some Arabic uh, uh, blog posts into English. Very simple. I think that anyone at the New York Times could do the same, but yet they did they don't. And what I what I discovered was that. Uh, a chlorine factory that produces uh, industrial strength uh, chlorine tablets, big ones for municipal water and and so forth. That was taken over by uh, terrorists, um, and this was up near Aleppo, I think. And they all the, these same terrorists had done makeshift chlorine uh, munitions in Iraq uh, a few years before. They were there was uh, Al Nusra Front or Front Victory. I think it was the uh, Arabic translation, front victory. And uh, so, so you had the, the means, you had the motive, and you had the material. So to me, that's that seems to me I know who's the culprit just based on those three things. I would start my investigation from there. And yet Britain and the U.S. went out of their way to try to implicate the Syrian government uh, for, those, for those incidents. And the Syrian government did not have the means, uh, did not have the motivation – uh, and probably did not have the material either, <laughs> but yes. yet, but yet they were prepared to use that as another crossing of the red line, so to speak. Yes, I mean the, another interesting point is that the first New York Times story was done by actually my friend uh, William J. Broad, who broke my story on whistleblowing uh, in uh, April two thousand six. But Bill Broad wrote this stupid story when I told him, Bill, you know what? What are you smoking? But anyway. A.J. Chivers, I think, C-H-I-V-E-R-S, he's another New York Times sort of science writer. He did a series of stories on chemical weapons attacks in Iraq, in the Kurdish areas, by uh, the uh, 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 ISIS and al-Nusra Front. And they obviously had access to all these originally probably from the Iraqi stockpile, not from the uh, Syrian stockpile. So they were completely able to use chemical weapons. And I tried to write an op-ed at that time saying that, look, you guys are now admitting that the rebels are completely capable of launching chemical weapons attack because you reported yourself that they are using it in the Kurdish areas. Of course, I wouldn't get any traction. The logical conclusion would be that uh, the same thing would be happening right. uh, in Syria as well, That's and so and so from from an investigative point of view, you're talking about you know they didn't even bother to check with the morgue. Um, are these names yes. identified? Are you know what are the names? Can we yep. see the bodies? And yep. so when the White Helmets, uh, which is an NGO uh, yeah. funded by the U.S. And the British Foreign Office and many other EU countries and Qatar, um, when they when they announced that they have saved seventy two thousand lives since they were founded in late two thousand thirteen, they said we've we've they've fished seventy two thousand lives saved out of the rubble of uh, of Assad and Putin's bombs uh, in Syria in the last uh, two years or two and a half years. That's a lot of bodies. Okay, so certainly yes. you. So if I'm if I want to verify those claims, the first thing you would be looking for would be what? Well, I, I would I would I would get the, I, I would definitely go to the morgue. I mean, the, I, 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 I remember after the coup in Chile, this is way back when, but they killed lots of people in a stadium in Santiago. 
and then the bodies were thrown in morgues and stuff like that. And the body count, people went and identified their loved ones and, and, and got numbers. But none of that. I mean, there is no, I mean, the UN wouldn't go to a morgue and say that there was a large number of casualties is uh, beyond belief. So they just took the, the, the reports at face value. In other words, yep. You, yep. so it could, any anything could be said and they weren't interested in verifying that i mean what so what what would um well that's not the job of of carla del ponte uh who is a u.n weapons yes. inspector yes she's looking at the 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 chemical weapons evidence maybe not yes. not so much so is this a is this a problem of interdisciplinary uh teams and investigation organization that the u.n has is this an institutional problem do you think well, it's not a institutional problem of the teams per se. I mean, OPCW has good people as scientists, and so did uh, Iraq uh, Unmovic, the commissions that looked at uh, uh, Iraq uh, WMD and chemical weapons under Hans Blix or uh, Rolf Akeas and, and people like them. I mean, I knew some of them, some of those people. Some of these people are good. It's not the problem of the teams. It's the problem of the UN leadership is what we have today, that this is, these are heavily infiltrated by um, uh, CIA and uh, uh, MI6 people. I mean, at some point, Saddam Hussein practically banned all UN inspectors. He knew these are intelligence operatives going there, fishing for things and inventing information. So the power structure in the UN, when you have an, an, a secretary general, that's a complete stooge like Ban Ki-moon, a complete stooge, then you have a real problem. I mean, I don't know the uh, new Portuguese guy, then maybe there is a little opportunity now to bring up these issues of misinformation and the UN role in propagating this misinformation. I mean, sometimes UN comes up with good reports. So, for instance, uh, on Gaza, and they are just, uh, I mean, Moon is, is not going to release them. So I think that this is the problem in the, international uh, structure within the UN that we don't, with the Security Council is heavily influenced by the US, its money, and then we have a Secretary General who is, uh, who is completely not independent. So, for instance, this, this investigation in Syria, there are two investigations. You mentioned Carla Del Ponte. Carla Del Ponte was the member of the investigation that was carried out under the UN Human Rights Commission. And uh, that's a Geneva-based organization. And this Guta incident was investigated by Angela, um, Angela Kane under the U.S. Disarmament Office, reporting directly to Ban Ki-moon. And there are four or five people. One of them was uh, AKS, I mean, sorry, uh, Selstrom from uh, Sweden. Um, so they are, uh, uh, Carla Del Ponte, from, from day one, as I understood, was saying they have evidence, interviews, that the rebels had used the chemical weapons. And but yes. where is Carla Del Ponte's report? That report was completely sidelined and nothing came of it. Instead, this is the uh, uh, Angela Kane's report that got the prominence. Uh, and even then, Kerry said, look, I mean, we're not going to find anything new from the UN. Why would you find anything new from the UN? Because you are giving everything to the UN and they are just basically uh, um, um, mouthing whatever you, you are giving them. No independent source of information. Wow! So they had two different reports, and they chose yes. to to put one on the table and put the other one in the drawer. Yeah. 
Yeah, basically. that was just that in that that investigation. Carla Del Ponte was invited by the Syrian government. I have seen her interview and I really want to contact her. So if anybody could help me get in touch with her, I would want to follow that up because she has evidence of that. And, um, uh, 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 and she's a very responsible senior UN official and uh, from the ICC, etc. And um, but she was not she couldn't get to go to Syria. And then and, and the report just fizzled out. And then I'm watching the, uh, I saw the British uh, uh, ambassador to the United Nations, uh, one of them anyway, I don't have his name to hand, but himself and many others rattling off death toll figures in Syria. Yeah. Uh, right. I've seen, say, Assad is butchered, 500,000 of his own yeah. people. Um, you know, uh, the, the politicization of that statement, let's put that aside for a second. Let's just look at the number. Um, this is a big part of of framing this conflict in Syria. And this is also a big part of basically um, stomping on on truthful reports is throwing around these death tolls. And the, on the low end, I've seen 300,000. On the high end, 600,000. And then normally this is attributed saying that they're all civilians when in fact we know that many of these are combatants and syrian soldiers so how many actual civilians is the first question i would want to know but yes. you know how do you view this issue because this is a huge area of confusion yeah no no doubt about i mean we obviously we are unable to get out the ground truth from Syria, it's a country that's battered by foreign aggression uh, and, and so much suffering. So uh, people like Vanessa, Eva and others and people like you are helping them take get out some information. Obviously, it's tremendously laudable, but uh, but we are not uh, we cannot match this incredible uh, resources of the people who are propagating the other way. One of the things I was thinking that we could demand, this would be a simple demand. If you have these kinds of casualties, and I would urge Vitaly Shurkin or somebody to demand this, that produce satellite imagery Saddam of Hussein these graves. Guy, right? If you have these kinds of casualties, really and, and this is not Hindu you know society where you cremate, and, and, and you are burying the dead, these mass graves or whatever, they are often able to find all these mass graves in Yugoslavia, in Serbia, and all this. Well, can we have some pictures of mass graves of 500,000 people. Yeah. Well, they, they, they would answer, well, they're spread out all over different parts of Syria and over the course of, of, of five years. But still, um, there would have to be family members who would yes. know that they lost somebody. I mean, we right. should have a list of names. Yes. Apparently, the Syrian Observatory for Human Rights, uh, which is... Uh, Rami Abdul Rahman, Osama Suleiman, I think is his real name, but he runs this out of Coventry in the UK. He meets with the British Foreign Office on a regular basis. So, you know, it's pretty certain that everything that he's producing is heavily politicized in favor of the sort of NATO member state narrative with regards to Syria. But but still, he would have some some real data, even if it's anecdotal or getting, you know, collating Skype messages, I think is his main form of data collection. And, I agree. And, and from the rebel side only, uh, for the most part. But certainly, um, there would be a way to look at names and to verify names. I know this is going to be a long and arduous process, but when you consider how, how incendiary 
this death toll figure, how it's thrown around and used to uh, demonize the Syrian government or to justify military intervention. This is actually an important task. Is this too big of a task for the international community? Do they have the resources to actually perform a proper investigation here? Or is it just a matter they don't have the will? Absolutely. I mean, resources, no, not a problem. I also think that if you look at Lancet, the British Medical Journal, Lancet did a great study in um, looking at the casualties from the other side in Iraq, and their number was like 750,000 people. So in this case, they are inflating all the Syrian casualties, and in the case of Iraq, they were deflating it, and they were bad-mouthing Lancet. But it may be some example of how Lancet uh, came up with this number in Iraq that uh, we can maybe use something. But as far as the, I think this should be a UN job. Now, I know that Samantha Powers and others are now wanting, uh, in fact, today France has a resolution in the Security Council asking for UN inspectors to uh, verify evacuation from Aleppo. Said that if we agree on UN presence, that the verification of the death toll, I think is so important. Yes, it is extremely important. The, Absolutely. The other thing, the, the, the other thing uh, before, we, you know, we're going to um, wrap up this segment, yeah. uh, Subrata, but before yes. we do, what do you think about this this idea that, that this term, the barrel bomb, we hear this is thrown around very casually uh, and very flippantly, um, especially in the U.S. and in, in Gulf media and Western media. Um, we, everyone's heard this barrel bombs, barrel bombs. John McCain says it every sort of every other word is barrel bombs when he talks about Syria and Assad. Have you looked at this at all? Is what exactly do you think we're looking at here? Because I cannot find any evidence nearly of the magnitude of reporting and mentioning that this term barrel bombs gets. Have, have you yeah, looked at this? Uh, I have not looked at it from any. Uh, depth in terms of uh, a technical analysis, but I have, uh, first of all, this was once Syria, uh, the government of Syria agreed to demilitarization uh, of its chemical weapons by signing on to the chemical weapons treaty, then they were, their excuse for the red line was gone. So then they came up with this business of barrel bombs, where you can say that they are dropping chlorine on people. Now, chlorine, of course, it would give me irritation in your eye and stuff, but chlorine is not a nerve agent. It's not sarin. It's not going to kill you. And so its effectiveness is very limited. So, uh, and, and I would think that they would have to be dropped from helicopters, not from aircraft. And so far, I mean, all these uh, uh, rebel videos and stuff, I have not seen anywhere uh, uh, they have any pictures of this so-called barrel bomb being dropped. And you are absolutely right. It comes up every day. And then there was an article in the New York Times that said that the casualties from barrel bomb, actually, I, I think I have clipped that, that there was no casualty from, from barrel bombs. Yet people think, my God, chemical weapons is something fantastic going on there. 
Yeah, and, and in fact, uh, CNN did a report in May, I think it was May 27th, 2015, I memorized the date, I'll repeat it again, Sanjay Gupta, Dr. Sanjay Gupta oh, yes. inter- interviewed James Le Mesurier, the founder, oh, he's a yeah. British officer, military officer, who's founder oh. of the White Helmets, he said that a barrel bomb was the equivalent of a 7.6 on the Richter scale, so oh, I, I, I looked up Subrata to see how many tons of TNT I would need to generate yeah. a 7.6, and it turned out to be equal to a hydrogen bomb oh oh that's such a some unbelievable claim to make i mean i mean it might have a little bit of an explosive payload if they use it just to spread the chlorine around but 7.6 on a richter scale that's the biggest bullshit i've heard (laughs) it's pretty it's pretty outlandish but yes Yes. that passes as as mainstream reporting perfectly acceptable on cnn but uh, you know, it seems to me the barrel bomb is very similar to what they describe with shrapnel filled with screws and nails. Yeah. and it is, It's very similar to describing the gas canisters, the propane tanks, the makeshift uh, hell cannon uh, yes. munitions that the so-called rebels are firing from East Aleppo onto civilians uh, in West Aleppo. Almost identical in terms of what they're accusing the barrel bomb of being is exactly what the hell cannon is. And I have seen videos and looked at actual evidence of hell cannons, plenty of them, right? Um, I I can just make one point quickly, Patrick, on this, that the barrel bomb would likely be a very ineffective weapon because one of the Achilles heels of chemical weapons is the problem of dispersing them because they are fairly unstable. And chlorine is, of course, in a liquid form. So dispersing liquid is is just you know you have to spray it it's it doesn't affect large areas so it's really ineffective as a weapon why a military would deploy something like that and spend all the fuel in flying aircraft or helicopters whatever just doesn't make a military sense either and not only that it's it's vulnerable if the helicopter is in a stationary yeah, position that's uh, exactly right vulnerable to rpgs so it doesn't exactly. make it again doesn't make any sense so no but um Listen, we, I know we could talk about a lot more <laughs> in depth, and I hope we will. Um, I'd like, uh, hopefully, to come back on the show or my other uh, uh, radio show on KFNX. But um, I really appreciate your time, Subrata, and uh, and your work as well. Uh, very, very brave uh, for you to challenge uh, the establishment line on some of these big events. I know it's not easy work, um, but we really appreciate and we appreciate your commitment uh, to finding out the truth. Again, my pleasure and my thanks to you for having me on. Thank you. And what a pleasure it was, the interview. Yeah. No, it's our pleasure. Thank you. Take care, Subrata. Okay. Bye-bye now. There he goes, ladies and gentlemen. That is Subrata Goshroy. Uh, he is a research affiliate at MIT and the author of the UN Chemical Weapons Critique uh, in September 2013. We'll be right back. We're going to connect with our next guest, Eva Bartlett. She's on the road. We're going to try to catch her in between flights. We'll be right back. Well, you're Captain Buck Rogers, and according to your ship's log, you left Earth in 1987. That much I know. Tell me what I don't know. Well, if preliminary data holds up, it appears you have returned to Earth 504 years later. You are now in the 25th century. Are you all right, Buck? Did you hear me? Buck? I think I will have it right now. Be-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de-de
And one of the things that I've used on the Google is uh, to pull up maps. I have filters on internets.